You're listening to the Grace City Boston podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at gracecityboston.com or follow us on social media at Grace City Boston. Now, let's get to the sermon. Good to have you here this morning. So uh, if you weren't here earlier, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at um, Grace City. And so, so glad to have you here this morning. We realize that every... um, uh, that you live in the city and your weeks are busy um, and the weekend is kind of like typically your space and so the fact that you would um, be here is uh, we're just real honored to have you uh, here this morning and so we're actually kicking into uh, a new series we just uh, finished out a series called the lies um, that I believe you can go back and, and listen to that series but uh, we're in a new series uh, entitled um, so that you believe and, um, and and so you kind of look at that statement you're like, okay so where uh, what exactly does that mean? Kind of where are we going to be going over the next few weeks together? Um, that statement actually comes directly from uh, Scripture. It's coming from the, the book of John. And so we'll just kind of dive right into it. So John uh, chapter 20 uh, in verse uh, t- 30, um, this is what John says. And we're going to get into the gospel of John here in a second. And so uh, we'll, we'll kind of walk through a little bit about who he was and kind of his whole reasoning for writing his, his gospel. Uh, but if you turn to the very back of John, uh, this is what he says. He just kind of gives you his reasoning for uh, why he wrote his gospel account in the first place. And so John uh, 20, 30, and 31, it says this. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. So there were uh, lots of things that Jesus was doing. There were teachings that Jesus was teaching that we, we couldn't possibly have all these things written down. Uh, verse 31 It says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So again, you're at the end of John's uh, gospel. You've kind of worked your way uh, through this particular uh, account of the the life of Jesus. And and John essentially says, hey, I've written all of these things down. And he, he essentially says what he wants you uh, to take away from his book and then the result of, if you follow kind of his instructions at the end, the result. And so the, 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 what he wants you to kind of take away when you read his book is belief. So it's like very straight level. John's saying, I want you, I've written these things down so that you would believe. And then he says, because through that belief, right, so not simply intellectual uh, like there's not just kind of this intellectual intake that John's wanting, but he's saying that through that belief comes life. That through belief in Jesus, I've written these down, through belief in Jesus, the result is life. So he tells you what he wants you to take, and then he tells you the result of what's going to happen. Now, John, um, it's really fascinating. When you kind of look at the history of John, so the, the author of um, this particular gospel account, uh, he's actually referred to uh, about five times or so in John's gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? Which you get to appreciate a guy who's writing a book and then in the writing of the book refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. Like I always just really appreciate about that. I'm like, you have a very high, you know, level and belief in yourself and I respect that uh, about you. Um, John is the one who at the Last Supper of Jesus' Last Supper, if you're familiar with that, or maybe you've seen the picture, uh, one of the disciples is laying his head against um, Jesus. That is uh, John. Uh, Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, she actually will spend, uh, from, from what we understand, she's actually going to spend the rest of her life living in John's home. 
that she will, she will spend until her death uh, living with John. And so John's gospel account, this, this uh, account of the life, um, death, and resurrection of Jesus is very personal. It's very firsthand. It's not kind of a secondhand account. Um, it, and, and all this is really important as you kind of get into the very beginning of his gospel account. But, it, but it, it's, it's very, it's, uh, John's relationship with Jesus was highly relational. And so he saw the, the teachings of Jesus firsthand, and he had interactions with him and having conversations with him. And so now we get this uh, account from uh, John himself. The, the book of John, honestly, is my favorite. Uh, I don't know if you're allowed to have favorite um, books of the Bible, uh, but it's actually my favorite gospel account. It's the one that I would tell people, uh, if you're just kind of starting out reading the Bible, I actually say go to the book of John. Uh, it's kind of the one that is written um, in just kind, of a, just kind of in a different way. And so he, here's what John's going to do on the very front end that we're going to see um, in, in chapter 1 in the first few verses. John's whole desire at the very beginning of his book is to platform Jesus. Like at, at the very beginning, and Chang read it for us, but um, at, the, at the front and center of his gospel is going to be uh, Jesus. And, and he's going to do it from the very, very beginning of his account, right? So, so when you get into it, like there's no kind of build up. John's not trying to build up. He kind of gives the big reveal on the very front end of his gospel, right? Like, like some people, when you write stories, like someone should have talked to him about how to do literary work. You, you build up to the climax, right? So you, you kind of draw people in, and then you give them the climax. They're like, whoa, that's incredible. That's amazing. That's mind-blowing. I cannot believe that that's possibly true. And John, at the, like verse 1, John goes, here's the climax. Here it is. I'm just, I just want to lay it out for you at the very beginning of my story. You, you don't have to guess around. You have to feel around for it. Um, he, he's just going to platform who Jesus is at the very beginning. And the reason that he does that is remember. The reason that he does that is because he says, I want you to believe because through belief comes life. And if you want life, if you want human flourishing, right, if you want that, it comes through belief in Jesus. This is the appeal that John is making to his audience, to the people that are going to be reading. Okay, let's, let's get into it. John chapter 1, uh, 1 through 3. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to your Bible, or if you have your phone, um, or if you have a physical Bible. I, we love the physical Bibles. Anyone, have, anyone brought a physical Bible? Okay, great. Anyone seen one before? Okay, all right, here we go. All right, so I'm just kidding. I'm just going to keep, okay, all right, John 1, 1 through 3. Let me read it um, for us. It says, uh, in the beginning, my scripture's on my iPad. I just need to, in a moment of vulnerability, <laughs> can I just speak some, I just, in a moment, I felt convicted by the Holy Spirit in that moment. I'm chastising you while looking at my iPad. All right, here we go. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get into the scripture. God, we thank you for your word in whatever form it comes in. Um, God, would you speak to us this morning? We ask uh, for your help from your spirit. Um, God, we do want to believe, not simply for belief's sake, um, but we want to believe so that we can experience life, so that we can experience flourishing, so our neighbors and world can experience flourishing. God, would you help us? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. John 1, uh, 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning, and all things were created through Him. Apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been 
created. Okay, so this is one of those places in Scripture where it's really important to be able to place yourself in the audience's context, right? So um, the, the audience that's going to be reading this is primarily uh, Jewish people and, and, and Gentile people, right? That kind of covers the whole spectrum. And so John's um, got kind of two things that he's doing here. He's trying to appeal to his Gentile audience who have kind of no Jewish background. Uh, and then he's got his Jewish audience who have a deeply um, religious background in, in, in Judaism and have an understanding of the Old Testament. And so in this kind of context, uh, it, it, you kind of want to place yourself in, um, in, in their shoes. And so John, l- look at verse 1. At the very beginning, he says, in the beginning was the word. Now, if you're super familiar with scripture, uh, that probably already triggered you at the very beginning, because it most certainly would have triggered a a Jewish, a first century Jewish audience for John to start his gospel account in the beginning, for them would have immediately cued them back to where? Uh, Back to Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis 1, 1 through 3, just briefly, um, this is the the creation account, if you're not familiar with um, the, the, the Bible and the creation story. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right, so there, there's that statement in the beginning. Now the earth was formless and, and uh, formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. Okay, so there's this uh, creation narrative that they're they're going to be very familiar with. The Jewish audience are going to be uh, extremely familiar with. And so John, again, he's platforming Jesus at the very beginning of his gospel, and he says, "In the beginning was Jesus." In the beginning. He's going to, like, right off the bat, he's going to say something an unbelievably um, triggering and, and honestly, in a lot of ways, ridiculous to his audience. He's going to say, hey, this Jesus of Nazareth, this rabbi that you know, this carpenter that you know, he's actually in the beginning. Now, if you look back at that Genesis 1, 1 through 3 um, uh, scripture there what, what you notice in that is in verse one it says in the beginning it says god created the heavens and earth so you have god the father then you get to verse two it says now the earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and it says the spirit of god was hovering so he said okay so the the father was there at creation he's eternal the the spirit was there at creation he's eternal and now he's saying jesus the son was at creation and he's eternal this is why when we read the Old Testament, when we're on th- this side um, of the, the Old Testament, and, and we, now we have the New Testament, we read it through the lens of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, we actually know, we've talked about it before, but if you're reading the Old Testament, there are multiple accounts where, uh, where scholars would say, no, that, that's, that's Jesus. It's not saying Jesus. It would say an angel of the Lord appeared. That, that we kind of have these statements that we see in the Old Testament, which is a, a manifestation of Jesus in the Old Testament. And John just says, again, he's platforming Jesus. He says, in the beginning, Jesus was there. He's the eternal one. He's the eternal one. Uh, one commentator uh, says it um, this way, comparing John to the other Gospels. It says, while the other synoptic Gospels, that just means the other, the, the other three that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are, are less overt in presenting uh, Jesus as divine, John unapologetically and from the very outset claims that Jesus was God who existed prior to and was God's agent in creation. So he says, this Jesus, we, we know he is eternal. He's eternal. Well, how do we know that he's talking about um, Jesus here? Well, another fascinating aspect of um, John's gospel account, if you look back at verse 1, 
is that he's going to start his gospel account with this word called word, right? So we see it. It says, in the beginning, um, uh, it says, in the beginning was the word. Now, the Greek uh, word for word is logos. Uh, that, that's the, what we have, L-O-G-O-S. And it's really, um, it's actually really a, f- a fascinating word. Um, it's a word that has all kinds of depth to it. it. It's not like a normal kind of English word, right? So uh, there's probably many of you, uh, English is not your second, uh, or English is like your second language, right? So your, your kind of native tongue is probably way more beautiful and has way more depth than the English language. We just can't handle it. And so we just need like very base level, um, you know, if we're your, your first, level, your first uh, language is English. But in, in the Greek, there was this kind of rich depth to the words that we have. And so um, this word logos actually means uh, a lot of different things. And so John's going to use a word uh, that has an enormous amount of kind of cultural and philosophical weight to it. Again, remember, he's speaking to Greeks and he's speaking to um, the Jewish people. So if you're a Greek listener, uh, the Greeks, uh, Greek philosophers, they actually came up with this idea of logos. Uh, this was not original to John. Uh, they came up with the idea of logos. Uh, and it was an incredibly important and kind of fulfilling uh, thought for them, this, this idea of logos. So, so here's basically what happened. So, so the Greeks kind of looked around at nature. Uh, they looked around at kind of the creation. And, and this is kind of what they saw. Um, they saw balance. They saw harmony. Uh, they saw order to nature. So, okay, there seems to be, the Greeks were like, there seems to be something going on here. There's a type of order that we, we, we can't quite understand, but we can see it. Uh, we, we, we understand it. And, and so th- they, they basically come to this thought that there has to be some kind of spiritual or, or cosmic principle at work here that, that we, we don't quite grasp. But they're like, there's got to be something that's happening here. This is what the, a Greek audience would have, have thought. Uh, one philosophy book, um, it says the Logos, this is outside of Scripture, it says the Logos for the Stoics, which were one group of kind of Greek philosophers, uh, merged with the impersonal, harmonious, and divine structure of the cosmos um, as a whole. So, so basically what they would say is, um, behind the order and balance that we see, uh, there's some kind of logos force, right? So think Star, if you're a Star Wars fan. Um, it's kind of like that, but not, you know. And so they're like, there's some kind of thing happening here. Um, because our world is way more balanced. And, and, and even though it's complex, there's a type of orderly thing going on here there, there's something here and, and so the, the the word logos essentially means purpose or reason for life purpose or reason for life so so in other words this is this is what this is what they would say they would say we believe the universe has a logos the the greek philosophers of the day the greek people of the day that there's an absolute truth or a reason for its existence that there's meaning and purpose in life that we don't simply exist without purpose this is what they would say. They would describe it as this logos. Okay, so, so let's think through that for a second. So the, the Greeks would essentially say, so if the universe is a logos, um, if, if life has a logos, if there's some kind of spiritual and cosmic structure to the universe, um, that would mean I should align myself with the structure of the universe. Everyone following along? Right? This is what the Greeks would think. They would think, okay, I want to figure out how do I move in the grain of the universe how do I move along with this logos, right? Because if I move um, against the logos, right, at, at, you know, at best I live a life that's not content, right, or I don't experience joy. And at worst, if I work against the logos, I, I live a life that leads to destruction and despair. 
So this is what the Greeks were trying to do with the logos. They're, they're trying to find this principle, um, this, this kind of way that the universe is working. Now, the problem is that no one could completely agree on what this principle was, right? As you, isn't that shocking to, to imagine groups of people? Um, th they couldn't quite figure it out, right? Uh, and, and so they're thinking, okay, there's a system, there's an order. I want to align myself with the ultimate reality. This is kind of what they're thinking. But they're like, I'm not really sure. So, so you had like, um, so for the Stoics, this was a group of Greek philosophers. Um, basically what they said about life is that if you align yourself with the logos, that means you just accept whatever happens. Life, death, um, everything, in, everything that happens in nature is all right. So you just kind of align with it. This was, this was their belief. You accept everything, suffering, death. Uh, don't, don't let it get to you. Like, have a happy life. Just, just if those things happen, the Stoics would say, if those things, that's, you're moving with the logos of life, just accept it. Just keep, just keep kind of rolling on. This was their belief. Uh, you had another group of people, uh, the Epicureans, who had a, a, a different approach, right? So you had some people whose approach was like, live for other people. That's the logos of, of life. You should live to help other people feel fulfilled and cared for. This is what you should do. The Epicureans actually said, no, no, um, the, the logos of life is, is about selfishness that you, in moderation, but it's about um, caring for self. So you, if you're going to align yourself with the logos, the reality of the universe, you, you take care of self. And so you had these competing kind of um, logics behind uh, what the logos is or beliefs behind the logos. You see how this is creating problems. So, so when a Greek reader is reading John's gospel account and he says, in the beginning was the logos, it's masterful. It's genius. He, he's, he's cueing his Greek readers to go, logos, the, that's the, the grain of the universe. Uh, okay, what, what, are you, what are you saying in this moment? And, and ultimately, when you, uh, when you get into uh, the, the text, right, all of this is kind of swirling around. And John drops into the scene with his a gospel account, and he, he, he basically says, absolutely, there's a logos. 100% there is. There, there, there is a logos. There is um, there, there's uh, something that's happening here. It's not principles. It's not strategies. Um, it's not, not rules. Now, there is a logos, and we live for this thing, but he essentially says it's a person, not a principle. He says you want to align yourself with ultimate reality. What John says is that it's Jesus, not a principle, not a set of, of beliefs, not a system. So his Greek listeners are like, what is happening here in this moment? Now, if you're a Jewish audience and you, you, you hear this and, and uh, you hear John go, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was in the beginning and he was with God in the beginning and all things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing that was created that has been created. If you're a Jewish audience and you hear Jesus is the word, the, the manifestation of God the Father. Now you're triggered, right? John, masterful, right? Th this is why the Bible, I don't want to say that. Th this is why the Bible, don't take this the wrong way. This is why the Bible is like the greatest literary work to ever be created, although it's more than literary. Um, this is masterful. And, and so when they hear him say that he is the word, they're like, okay, what's happening here? Some, something's the word? The word? Capital W, the word? 
Uh, the most important verse in this whole section is John 1.14. This is the most important verse in the whole section. It gives light to everything else. Look what he says in John 1.14. He says, the word, there it is, the logos, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is what John says. John says, the word has now been made flesh. God has manifested himself to us, but no longer in words that come from a mouth, but from a person, and his name is Jesus. He said, this is the word. Uh, N.T. Wright, um, biblical scholar, uh, he, he, he says this. He said the Old Testament readers would have picked up the reference at once. God's word in the Old Testament is his creative utterance, his power in action fulfilling his purposes. The Old Testament depicted God's utterance, the actual statement of his purpose, as having power in itself to affect the thing. Purpose. Let, let's think about God's words for a second. God's words for the Jewish audience, God's word is how everything was created. Uh, again, we've already read it. Genesis 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the water, depths, the spirit of God hovering over the surface. And then look at verse 3. It says, Then God said, Let there be light. So for them, the word of God had the, was a creative power behind all things that exist. That, that literally, God didn't break out in a sweat at creation. He spoke it, and then it came into existence. This is what they understood about the word of God. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 33, uh, 6 and verse 9, it says, The heavens were made by the word of the Lord and all the stars by the breath of his mouth, verse 9, for he spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it came into existence. God's word. God's word gave direction. Exodus 20, 1 through 4, this is a, uh, when God gives the Ten Commandments. It says, then God did what? Then God spoke all these things. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have any other gods beside you. He, then he rolls into the Ten Commandments. It was God's word that brought about insight and clarity for the Jewish listeners. The, the Jewish list, literally humanity could fall apart and God's word would stand. This is what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 47 through, Isaiah 47 through 8. He says, the grass withers. The flowers fade, but the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. John could have used any word that he wanted to there. He could have said, uh, in the beginning was the truth. Um, in the beginning was light. In the beginning was life. In the beginning was love. Any of them would have been great, right? He says, in the beginning was the word, the logos. And this logos, this word, is actually, um, is actually flesh. He, he, here's the thing. This is why John could say this. Again, John's coming from a Jewish background. Um, John had essentially come to see the words of Jesus as the truth of God. So, so the words that Jesus was speaking as the truth of God and the person of Jesus as the truth of God in, in such a unified way that Jesus was the complete message of God. So he saw the words of Jesus as the truth of God and the life of Jesus as the truth of God so much in a unified way that both of these things make up the message of God. This is why he says, in the beginning was, uh, in the, beginning was the word. Why do we use words? Think about why we use words. Why do we use words? To do what? Communicate, right? So if I'm, I'm trying to communicate something to you, 
uh, a truth, uh, a reality, or if I'm trying to hurt you, right, we, we use words with intention. Go do this, don't do that. Here's what I think about you. I love you. I don't love you, right? Like we, like we use words because uh, I'm, I'm trying to reveal something to you that, that I need to reveal to you, right? So if I tell my kids, I'm like, um, baby, don't do that because that, that could, that could really hurt you. What I mean by that is don't do that because that could really hurt you, right? Now, it sounds like I'm not saying that, but I literally am saying that to you right now. It's with intention. We, we use words with purpose, right? As a, a way of revealing, um, as a way of revealing truth. But this is who Jesus was. Jesus as the word is revealing the, the, the will of the Father, the value system of the kingdom of God. Now listen to how the writer of Hebrews says it. Hebrews 1, uh, 3 says it perfectly. It says, long ago, uh, long ago, God spoke to the ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. So in the Old Testament, God's speaking through the prophets. This is how God would speak. In these last days, talking about the days that they're in, he's done what? He's spoken to us by his son. This is God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. Again, so there we're seeing um, Jesus as the word of God and Jesus also as the creative force behind the universe. Even the writer of Hebrews is saying this. Verse 3, it says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by what? By his powerful word. See it? Jesus as the word. So if, you, if, so if the question is, what is God like? The answer is look at Jesus. Right? What, what's the Father like? Um, we'll look at Jesus. If you want to know what the Father um, values, look at what Jesus values. If you, you want to know what pleases the Father, look at the, the way Jesus lives, right? How, how do we make choices? We look, look at the life of Jesus. This is what he was. He was, um, he was ultimately uh, the Word. And this is why it's important as we um, read the Scriptures that we understand the scriptures we understand we study them we we meditate on them we think on the words of jesus he's revealing the 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 father to us here's essentially what john is doing um john's trying to do us a favor because john's like listen um me and my friends you know my earliest followers we missed it like we we caught it on the back end but he's like i I just want to do you a favor and on the front end john's like i'm just going to platform jesus so that you see him I'm going to save you all kinds of heartache, and I'm going uh, well, try to save you all kinds of heartache, right? And he just said, don't, don't be like us. This is exactly who he was. So he says, order, order your life around Jesus. Take your, take your cues from Jesus. And you're like, where does, where does John even get this? Well, listen to what Jesus himself said about himself. Matthew 5, 17 and 18, um, Jesus says this, and, and think about how it connects with the word. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill I'm a fulfillment of the law. I'm a fulfillment of the word. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of the letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. John 17, 6, Jesus says this, I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. Um, Pastor and author Eugene Peterson, uh, who's like my mentor from afar. Uh, If you've been here long enough, a big crush on him. Uh, This is how he translates that in his message. I have spelled out your character in detail. It's John 17, 6, translation. I have spelled out your character 
in detail. So Jesus is the fullness of God. It's the shocking truth and reality about what we call the incarnation of Jesus, right? Incarnation means God comes in flesh, that he's revealed the Father. So John says Jesus is the word. Okay, let's knock on, uh, well, l- l- John 1, 17, 18. Look what he says, and then we'll, we'll kick on down to verse 4. Um, 17, it says, For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. He says the Son reveals the Father. All right, John uh, 4 through 5. Let me move fast. You're like, you're already moving fast, bro. All right, 4 and 5, John 1. You're like, that was three verses. All right, here we, we're going we're gonna to go there. All right, in him, here he goes, John 4 and 5 of, of 1. It says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Okay, so this is what John says. John says, um, Jesus is the word, right? That we look at the words and the life of Jesus. This is what he's communicating to us. And now he's saying life comes through Jesus. Again, think back at the, the end of the John's gospel account where he says belief leads to life. And then he says if you want life, if you want human flourishing, it comes through Jesus. Uh, not a way of living, not principles, not a system, right? You're not going to dial in life. He says life comes through Jesus, through a person. So he says, in him was life. And that life was uh, the light of men. Now, think about the, what's the function of light, right? Um, So if you were, uh, say you were at your house, and uh, say you woke up in the middle of the night, and you, you got like hungry, or you had to go to the restroom, right? Which, as you get older, happens a lot. Um, what, what, what are you going to do, right? So if, if, if you wake up, um, your house is, is probably dark. The, the reality is, like, if you, if you need to kind of navigate to that space, you, you could probably navigate in the dark, right? If, you're, if your house is anything like our house, it's like, it's actually never dark in my house uh, because there's lights everywhere on the outside. Um, but, but just play along with me, right? So if, if it's dark in your house, you can kind of navigate if, if you know your way around. You, you, you can kind of do that. But, but without the light, the likelihood of you stubbing your toe, of you running into something is what? It's like, it's pretty high. Uh, most likely. I, if you're in a house with kids, it's very high, right? It's very likely uh, that you're going to step on something, trip over something, I, you could l- lose your life um, on the way to the restroom, right? Um, that's just reality. And so what, what do you do? You cut on the light. Well, why do you cut on the light? The light does what? The light reveals. Don't you think there's a reason that our flesh loves the darkness? Like we talk about the flesh as a, one of the enemies of the soul. Um, isn't there a reason that the flesh loves the darkness? Um, that the majority of, of the, the evil that happens in our world happens in the dark? Like, like isn't there something to that? And, and so John says life comes through Jesus, but he also says if you want enlightenment, if you want revelation, it actually comes through Jesus. I, if you want, think, let's continue with this light metaphor. If you want to see um, your reality for what it is. Come to Jesus. Because otherwise you're walking in darkness. Uh, you'll order your life around all kinds of other things. You'll prioritize all kinds of other things. And, and what you'll find is life is not ultimately about that prior, 
um, about prioritizing around that relationship or that career or those resources or that status or that position or that reputation. Like, like we order our life around things when we're in the darkness, uh, around things that aren't true. And so John says when Jesus comes, he, he reveals life to you. And, and, and so what happens is you go, oh my gosh, um, life is not about what I thought it was. And you, you suddenly become more patient. You suddenly become more kind. You become more self-controlled. You begin to see your neighbor with a, a posture of love and affection. You begin to seek to serve people when you otherwise wouldn't. See that? Because you start realizing and thinking, oh, uh, life is not what I thought it was. Like, the kingdom of God is totally something else than I considered it was. And so John says, if you want to see reality for reality, it comes through Jesus. So he's the word. He's a communicating aspect of God the Father. He's life. You get life and human flourishing. He's the, the way that you see reality for what it is. It's why, honestly, it's why as you grow in your relationship with God, in your walk with Jesus, in your Christian discipleship, it's why you should grow more and more uncomfortable with the way that you used to live. It's why you should look back on your life. <laughs> Did you ever do this before? Uh, so I, I became a Christian when I was 15, and um, so a little over 20 years now. And I look back, and I think, e even as a Christian, and I think, I cannot believe I did that. I cannot believe I said that. I cannot believe I uh, partake in that. Why, wh whatever, right? Why, why is that? Because Jesus is light. He reveals, brings reality. And so this is what John is saying. He's saying this, this light um, comes through Jesus. He is the darkness. Now, he, he says in the in second part of verse 5, he says, and this darkness has not overcome it. It's not overcome it. All right, let's finish out John 1, 10 through 13, uh, back end here. He says, he was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. Okay, so, so John's hinting at us where his gospel is going to lead us to, where it's going to ultimately um, take us to, but there's a little bit of application that we can kind of glean from this before we get there. So in verse 10, it says, he was in the world, and the world was created through him. Now, he, here's why I say that John platformed Jesus at the very beginning, because we're going to get into um, like the wedding feast of Cana, we're going to get into uh, some miracles, we'll get into some like narrative that's happening there, some interactions with Jesus, but John is trying to set up in the first uh, like 14 verses of his gospel account that the Jesus that you see doing all of these things is the same Jesus that was at creation. That the rejected Jesus that you're going to see in my gospel account is the same Jesus who all of creation was created through. We have to carry that through the gospel account. We're going to carry that perspective. We, we're reading the gospel account through this lens that all things were created through Jesus. He was in the beginning. He's eternal word, light, and life. And so John, in verse 10, says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God. Here's essentially what, what John states. He says some people are going to reject Jesus. They're going to. 
uh, he could be the, the brightest light in the world, right? And, and he is. He could be the most intelligent teacher in the world, and he is. He could provide the most insight, right, to, to the human heart and the human psyche and mind of, of anyone else, and he was still going to be rejected. Uh, there, there's essentially three approaches to God. Here, let me give you the three approaches to God. Uh, two are rejection, and one is acceptance. Um, the first one is an outright rejection of God. Uh, so this would be like an, an atheist or agnostic. Uh, and they would just say, again, three approaches to God. They would just say, I don't need him. Not interested, right? Maybe that's some of you. Maybe it's some of your neighbors. Maybe it's a spouse, a friend, uh, someone that you're, you're dating. Um, we should talk about that later. Um, uh, identify as agnostic. And they would just say, I don't, I don't believe God. I don't need him. Not, not interested. This is outright rejection, right? That's pretty clear cut, uh, clear cut right? We, we see it. Uh, the second way of rejecting God is what we would call religion. Now, this is a little more tricky, and it's actually the uh, having kids who grow up in a church and being a pastor's kid. It's actually my, my fear, and it's actually a rejection of God through your works. Um, now, it's, it's tricky because it looks like Christianity, but it's not. Uh, it looks like faith, but it's not, and it's essentially a rejection of Jesus by saying, um, yes, Jesus is so important. Like, his life, death, and resurrection is super, super important, but I also got to live right. And if I can live right, God will love me more. And God's affection will be, be more upon me. His gaze will be more upon me if I live correctly. And essentially what you've said to Jesus in that moment is your life, death, and resurrection wasn't enough. I need to put my um, works on top of your death. Does that make sense? There's some people who go throughout their Christian faith, and this is, this is their reality, right? So when Jesus says, uh, remove yourself from me, I never knew you. And they're like, well, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I teach in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Uh, yes, you did some works for me, but you actually didn't trust me. You actually didn't trust just purely the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the second form of rejection in your approach to God. And then the third uh, approach that you have against God is not rejection, but is what we would call relationship. This is full yes to Jesus, like, like full stop, right? Um, that Jesus is the fullness of God, that I believe that he um, did exactly what I could not have done, that he put, took the punishment that, that I deserved, right? That he defeated death, right? The, the last great enemy, he defeated death at the cross and at the resurrection. That This is uh, w ultimately what we are after um, is, is relationship. Um, what you're going to get at in, in John's um, gospel account and this is, this is what we see at the very front end, is he's essentially going to say to us that the Christian faith is rooted in relationship with a person. It is not rooted in religious activity. Um, here's the gift that John gives us at the very beginning of his, his gospel account. Um, what, what John is trying to say to us is that God is a person, that he's revealed himself um, to us, that, that it's not um, th this Christian life that we live, um, it's not about adhering to a set of beliefs, it's not about adhering to a moral code, uh, it, it's not about um, doctrine and theology, al although all of that's important, but it's about a relationship. Here's Christianity at its base level. Let me give it to you at the base level. And it, honestly, um, this should shock the system. Like if you were to say, give me base level Christianity, like what is Christianity about, right? Um, 
Christianity, at, it, it's like telos, right? Where it's going. Its base level is you and I, through Jesus, have been invited into the triune relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Christianity is an invitation into the love, the affection that exists between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Christianity is come on up into this relational love, care, and affection for one another. That's base level, right? And, and when you put that with John's account, where John says, in the beginning was the word, that Jesus was the word, that he was the, the, the God made in flesh, the reality, I want, you to land, I want you to land this for a second, the reality is, the Christian faith is, every day you can walk in the reality that, that you have an invitation to be invited up into the triune relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. John says, that's what it is, man. That's the Christian faith. It's a person. This is an invitation. I mean, this is ridiculous. Jesus' three years of ministry. Uh, he did three years of ministry from 30 to 33 uh, before he was betrayed by, uh, one of his, um, by one of his disciples, right? Betrayed him. His three years of ministry was just a microcosm, uh, a micro example of, of what it would look like to live in the invitation of the relationship between God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Think about it. His followers were what? With Jesus, they were doing what for those three years? They're being very vulnerable with him. They're, they're sharing their weaknesses. Uh, they're sharing their doubts. They're seeing Jesus provide. They're seeing him heal people. They're, they're experiencing the miraculous because of their proximity to Jesus, are they not? It's just a micro picture of the invitation that we have. And so John says some people, his own people, rejected him. But those who accepted him, oh, th those people became heirs, sons and daughters, in relational harmony with God the Father and the Son and of the Spirit. Now, Paul, in his most famous description of Jesus, there's a collision of all of this that's happening. This way he says, Colossians 15 through 20, uh, 1, 15 through 20. I'll read it and then we'll be done. He says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So he was there in the beginning. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. The, the, the force that holds and sustains all things together, holding matter together, he says, is Jesus. Holds it together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that we might come to have first place in everything. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace. By what? By making peace through his blood shed on a cross. Paul says Jesus is the fullness of God in flesh. And that through his life, death, and resurrection, he brings peace. Shirley Guthrie says this about the incarnation, and then I'll pray for us. She says, he is not like a king who preserves his majesty and honor only by shutting himself up in the splendor of his palace. 
safely isolated from the misery of the poor peasants and the threat of his enemies outside the fortress. His majesty is the majesty of a love so great that he leaves the palace and his royal trappings to live among his subjects as one of them, sharing their condition, even at risk of vulnerability to the attack of his enemies. If we want to find this king, we will find him among the weak and lowly. His genuine majesty, both revealed and hidden, in choosing to share the vulnerability, the suffering, and guilt, and powerlessness. She says, this is the word. This is the king. This is the fullness of God. This is the king that's come down to earth. This is the Jesus that John is helping us to see. That he's not only the perfect son, but he was the perfect son who died. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the life of Jesus. God, the teachings of Jesus. That he serves as an example to us. God, would you help us? Help us be a people who look more like him each day. God, we ask you. We plead with you. Would you help us? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, I'm going to give you about 30 seconds or so. Maybe the Lord is kind of just processing and doing um, something in your life. Uh, I want to give you just a little bit of time to kind of sit in that. Uh, we also have something, uh, um, when we dismiss, we have something called the altars room. It'll be in the back behind the coffee bar. Uh, there will be some of us back there. Maybe you need someone to pray for you or, or um, maybe you just need to kind of get some help with some things that you're